We're back. Hopefully you missed those engine sounds and our little theme tune as much as we have, because finally, Bring Back V10's Series 2 is here. We'll have plenty of trips down F1 memory lane for you over the coming weeks, meandering our way through the V10 era from 1989 to 2005. And as we did at the end of Series 1, we'll be finishing off by taking your questions. So remember to ask us anything you like using the hashtag BringBackV10s on social media, and we'll get through as many as we can at the end of the series. But this isn't the time to talk about the end of the series, this is all about the start of a new series. And there was one man we barely talked about during our first run of episodes, so we thought it'd be fitting to put that right immediately. I don't really need to offer any suspense here because you've seen the episode title already, and we are finally dedicating an episode to Ayrton Senna. But we wanted to do it a little bit differently. Uh, All the great usual stories about Senna have been told brilliantly, whether it's through the film, through all the books, the magazine articles, websites... We wanted to look for something else to give the Bring Back V10's treatment, and we've chosen the only time he completed a significant amount of a race distance in a Williams. So we're looking at his final Brazilian Grand Prix in 1994. Joining me for episode one are Edge Draw, who's returning, of course, from last time, and Brazilian TV, radio, magazine, journalist extraordinaire and veteran of 50 years in the industry, Lito Cavalcanti. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming along. And actually, Lito, I'm going to throw the opening question to you first as you're our special guest. Thanks for coming along. And when you think of Senna and Brazil 94, what's the first thing that comes into your head? Well, first of all, uh, I must thank thank you for inviting me for such uh, a lovely theme. Well, uh, the first thought that comes to my head is Ayrton's frustration, disappointment, with the car uh, he had instead of the car he thought he would have. He had dreamed uh, for a long time to drive for Williams, and when he finally got there, the car was not the same. The rules had been changed. Yeah, I think that will be a big theme of the episode as we go through the build-up. We'll go through the winter of 93 and 94 and build up to the, the season opener of that fateful year for Senna. Ed, we've let you back in after uh, your antics in Series 1 and hopefully you'll stay quiet for long enough at times to let Lito speak and offer some real Brazilian insight for us. But same question to you. What's the first thing that comes to mind? And remember to keep it short. Uh, Always. Well, for (laughs) some reason, always etched in my memory is that shot of Senna in the stricken Williams after he spun at Jansau and then subsequently rolled onto the grass. And it's just that pulse rate that I always remember because the the pulse rate came up on the screen, 164 beats per minute. It's the kind of thing you suspect you've maybe misremembered. But I look back at the footage, I watched the full race uh, last night and it was there, 164 beats per minute. I've no idea why it was that, but that's just the the thing that I think of first when it comes to this race. Yeah, it was so rare for that sort of data and still is today. When was the last time we saw a live driver's heart rate during a Grand Prix? Bit of a shame, really, because they're phenomenal athletes and it'd be nice to know a bit more about what makes them tick physically later in this series we will actually get into how williams's move for senna during 1993 resulted in alan prost leaving the team a year earlier than planned we've got an episode coming up in a few weeks focused on the portuguese grand prix of 1993 and i can tell you that having done the research for that i've never known a two-week period in f1 with so many major stories going on at the same time so I already think that might be our longest episode ever when we get to it. But today we're focusing on Senna's first race for Williams. So we'll pick the story up when the deal was officially announced, which was in October 1993. And Senna says the move is a dream come true and that he has finally come together with Williams 10 years after the team gave him his first test in an F1 car at Donington. He also says, I am really looking forward to driving a Williams Renault in what I consider the beginning of a new life in motor racing for me. Lito, would you say that after the time Senna had had with McLaren, was it right that at the end of 1993, he did need a new life in F1? Absolutely. Uh, I have no doubt about it. He really needed it, mostly because he was coming uh, from a hungry time. Uh, he had uh, been facing wingless races, for too long for his personality, for his mind. And he always, he always wanted, he always needed victories 
uh, to justify the way uh, he coped with motorsport. That was his life. And it was not about coming home second. It was about being first. And he hadn't got it in McLaren for the last seasons. He, he, he was a little disappointed with, the, uh, with McLaren falling back. So, yes, he really needed it. And Frank Williams, at the time of the announcement, did pay tribute to Prost, who, of course, was the outgoing world champion. And Williams were effectively having to pay Prost to sit on the sidelines to make way for Senna, because Prost was initially on a two-year contract. And Williams said Senna was the only appropriate replacement for his arch-rival. Frank also said, I have always wanted Ayrton to drive for Williams. And he added, I have been talking to him for 10 years and suddenly there was an opportunity. So I want to look at this relationship a little bit between Senna and Frank. We know Senna turned down an offer from Williams uh, as he stayed loyal to McLaren and Honda for 1992. And then he offered to drive for Williams for free in 1993. But by that point, Prost already had his foot in the door. So that was never going to happen. A few years ago, Maurice Hamilton, experienced F1 journalist, wrote an excellent book about Williams's history. And we are going to cite that a few times in this episode. And in that, Frank's late wife, Ginny, revealed a bit more about how close Frank was to Senna. This is what she said. Frank and Ayrton had an extraordinary relationship. Ayrton always used to come and have dinner with us, I think even before he was at McLaren, when he was still at Lotus. He and Frank would have very long conversations after races, even during the McLaren time. I always knew when Frank was talking to Ayrton because Frank would be silent. When Ayrton signed, Frank was thrilled. I think everyone thought that Ayrton and Williams and Renault would be the golden combination and no one could get near him. Now, Ed, what I want to pick up on there is, is it strange for a driver to have had such a close relationship with a rival team boss that up to this point he'd never driven for? You know, Williams and Senna were often prime rivals, yet according to Frank's late wife Ginny there, they were in constant deep conversations of each other. Is that strange? It's certainly unusual. Uh, I guess they they clearly saw eye to eye, shall we say. They they had that that mutual desire to win, so that probably gave them something in common. And I guess once you had that initial connection from that first test at Donington, and then there was such a protracted period, there was that mindset that both sides will have felt it was their destiny eventually to team up. So I guess it was logical for Senna to keep a dialogue open with Williams because when it was McLaren doing the winning, that was good. But when McLaren wasn't winning, normally it was Williams. And for Frank Williams, Senna was the the guy doing the uh, doing the beating of Williams in, in other cars. So I guess they they felt they understood each other and that there really was this this destiny for them to team up and conquer the world effectively in Formula One. So yeah, everything pointed to, to 94 and then the great success that, that was to follow. Lito, was that something that people were aware of in Brazil or is that a surprise to hear that Ayrton would have a relationship like that with you know a rival team boss? Complete surprise. I didn't have a clue about it. I didn't. Okay. I couldn't even wonder. I'm still surprised because uh, loyalty was uh, a very, very bold um, piece of Ayrton's character. And it felt like, I don't know, it was strange at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk loyalty because the, the contract was signed in September and the deal was announced in October. And by the time of the Australian Grand Prix, which is in November, where Senna won his final race for McLaren, Ron Dennis was still trying to get him to change his mind. Uh, Ron opened up on his relationship with Senna on the McLaren website back in 2014, which was to mark the 20th anniversary of Senna's death. Ron said, we had people in the team who were all over the place emotionally. And I said, for goodness sake, I'm trying to get him to stay here. Be calm. He was hovering, really hovering. But he was a loyal guy and he told me, look, I've signed a contract and I've made a commitment. Even on the night of the race, he was still hovering. I could see Ayrton was wrestling with loyalty. As disastrous as our Peugeot experience was, the moment I told him we had factory engines from Peugeot for 1994, which was after he left, he told me that if, he'd done that, if I'd done that deal two months earlier, he would have stayed because he could not see a way to win without having a factory engine. Now, Ed, not only had Senna signed his contract by the point of Australia, which Ron's talking about, but this had also been announced for basically a month. So there's no way, surely, Senna would have gone back on it 
anyway. And Lita, of course, said he was a very loyal guy. Is this just wishful thinking from Ron at the end of 93? Yeah, I suspect it's the single-minded determination of Ron Dennis combined with a little bit of... uh unrealisticness I think we should say just believe that anything is possible obviously the previous season at the start of 93 and for the first part of the season there was all that uncertainty about Senna's role with the team whether he'd keep driving so maybe he thought well we we managed it last time but also I guess the stakes were really high because Senna was the only proven top championship winning driver active in F1 so perhaps an element of desperation as well or even a sense of entitlement that Senna was a McLaren driver but I'm not remotely convinced that anything Peugeot had to offer would have made any difference at all and it doesn't really fit in with the timelines and given how late they were with that engine and and the power levels it had when it got going I, I don't think there was a way for this relationship to be rekindled, certainly not uh, not for 94. No, and it's worth noting that when the deal was announced, uh, Senna was asked about the Peugeot news and he said it was not relevant because he'd decided some time before that that he needed to leave McLaren. And Senna reiterated this in an interview over the winter with journalist Karen Sturm, who he was very close to, and that ran in Autosport magazine in December. And there he said, it was time to go different ways, time for a change for me. I made this decision quite a long time ago. It had nothing to do with the engine. He said he knew Ron was talking to Peugeot and also Chrysler, which we will talk about in the Estoril 93 episode. And he said Ron's priority was chasing Renault, but he said he had to move on despite any alternative Ron could present. Senna said he never even needed to tell Ron he was leaving because Ron knew it was coming. And he mentioned, and Senna said, the difficulties we found, some different points of view about the way things happened, during their final three years together, made it inevitable. Now, Ed, in our Nigel Mansell McLaren episode, which was obviously a much shorter time they spent together than Senna and McLaren did, there were claims from Nigel in his book that he'd always wondered why Senna chose to leave McLaren. And when he got there, he could see why, because the team had fallen behind technically. Do you think maybe that's what Senna's hinting at here, that he'd also, he'd worked that out by the end of 93? Yeah, it's, it's very, very likely. And of course, Mansell had a great perspective on that because he was going from Williams to McLaren. So he was going the other way. And I'm sure Senna could see the the shortcomings. The very obvious one is the engine situation. Obviously, Honda fell behind Renault, then pulled out. And it took a little bit of time with the, the customer Fords. Then they got upgraded to work spec status. But they got the Peugeot deal, but there was no guarantee that that alliance was going to bear fruit, and indeed it, it never did. So it wasn't just the engine side, though, because in McLaren's case, although down uh, in, in the future they linked up with Mercedes and, and had all sorts of success, also the car side was a problem. With Adrian Newey, Williams had set new standards for the aerodynamic philosophy and understanding. McLaren simply wasn't at that level, and indeed it wasn't until McLaren got Newey that everything once again aligned for it, and it was a championship winner again in 98. So, you know, McLaren was still only a third of the way through a six-year fallow period in terms of titles when Senna left. So clearly he'd have seen some of that. He wouldn't turn his back on a team that he knew was going to be be successful for one that he didn't think was going to be better. And I'm sure that Senna and Mansell saw a few of the of the same signs, even if Mansell only had a, a very brief exposure to McLaren. Yeah, and this in interview I'm referring to with Senna in, in 93 is fascinating. And there's a lot of things about his mindset, which I think would be really interesting to talk to, to Leto about. And he talks about the expectations and the pressure that he felt was placed upon him in F1 at this time. And he says, the fact that after Prost's retirement, I will be the only remaining world champion, the only remaining constant winner, will definitely increase the pressure. This is quite a unique situation for F1 in the past 10 years or so. Everything will be even more concentrated on myself, all the public interest. I hope I can cope with it somehow. It won't be easy. I have been waiting for it for so long to start this new life from the moment I decided to change directions. I know that this new life means a big challenge for me. I've been waiting for it impatiently. I need it for my motivation. I am like a child waiting for his first chance to play with a new toy. Alito... Those comments about the awareness he had of the amount of pressure he was going to be on and all the spotlight would be on him. What does that tell us about Senna the man by this point in his life? Are you surprised that he spent time thinking about those things or is it is that just the way he was, that he would always have this awareness of the world going on around him? Well, not that much because one of his constant concerns was uh, about his public image. Uh, he always... Uh, wanted 
dreamed of being uh, seen as a winner, as a hard work, a hard working man, and wanted to to pass on the message that hard work always pays. And it, it was it was one of his uh, concern about the children that looked at him like a hero, looked looked up him. Uh, no, really, really not surprised about about it. He was always, always very mindful with his image. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's part of why he had maybe the status that he did in Brazil. So the last thing we'll pick up from this interview before we move truly into 1994, Senna reveals that on the day he signed his contract with Williams, Flavio Briatore from Benetton was calling him about a drive for 1994. Senna said, I had Flavio on the phone wanting to meet me by any means, trying to see whether I could drive for him next year. Even if he has said publicly that there wasn't a place for me in his team, the truth was different. He actually phoned me as I was on my way to sign, but he doesn't know that. And Briatore has spoken about this when he appeared on Formula One's Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson. He didn't mention this specific phone call, but he said he spoke to Senna during 93 about coming to Benetton. Senna went to his house and told him he was getting $1 million per race from McLaren. And Senna basically said to Flavio, you can't afford me. Sure enough, Flavio offered him $8 million that he'd been able to get from a sponsor that was willing to pay for Senna, but he was told no chance. So Ed, this means we could have ended up with Senna and Schumacher as teammates in Benetton at 1994. How do you think that would have gone? I suspect it would have gone absolutely terribly, actually. <laughs> it's the last thing Benetton needed. You know, this team is very focused on its lead driver. We saw that in, in the future as well. Schumacher was well-established and ready to win, so it made sense for him to be the driver they backed. I mean, obviously, Senna in a Benetton would have been formidably quick. He'd have had no problem being successful there. But I, I just don't see the benefit Benetton would have got from partnering Senna with Schumacher at, at that time, other than it would just take off the board probably the one other driver who who could beat the one they already had. So, yeah, I, I just don't think it was really very wise. I doubt if Flavio had really thought it through uh, fully at that stage. The bottom line is they, they did not need to sign Senna, beyond the fact that any team could have benefited from Senna. Those working at the team at the time knew Schumacher was ready for a, a title push. Pat Simmons, who was engineering him, was saying that they felt Schumacher was ready for a title push in 93. It's just the car wasn't quite good enough. So... Yeah, and there would have been all manner of fractiousness, I imagine, with Schumacher trying to assert himself and Senna quite logically expecting to be the number one driver. So I, I just can't see that being a, a relationship that would have that would have worked. But it would have been enormously fun, I imagine. Oh, it'd been so entertaining, wouldn't it? And actually, I think we might mention this in the Estoril ninety three episode. McLaren were trying to get Schumacher, so maybe Flavio was trying to to cover all bases in case he thought he was going to lose him. But I like the idea. I prefer the idea of talking about them as potential teammates and the fireworks we would have had. Senna goes on to say that he spoke to Ferrari as well and he admits that he assessed his options across all the likely front-running teams. He says, I was also in contact with Ferrari, but Ferrari went through many changes on both the management and the technical sides in the past two years and it was difficult to establish a starting point. Before finally making a decision, I tried to find out from the four main teams what their potential was for me, both technically and commercially speaking. And I found a lot of open doors. If I can be competitive and do a good job, any top team must have an open door for me. Lito, again, Ayrton being so honest and open here, it's often talked about, would he have gone to Ferrari? Do you think it's inevitable that he would have gone there before the end of his career? Yes, I do. I really think so. Uh, there are many reasons for this. Uh, first of all, because uh, Ferrari. Ferrari is the biggest team, is the, is the most historical team. And there's also a cultural uh, aspect about it because Siena is was from Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo has the... Uh, widest Italian population out of Italy. It's there's a, a huge influence of Italians in in the whole town, and Senna was uh, a typical Paulista, and of course he had Ferrari in his mind since he was a kid. 
I'm I'm really sure it, it would happen someday if he had survived that day in Imola. Yeah, I always think it would have been that maybe Senna would have been the one Ferrari took around the time of 96, 97 instead of Schumacher. Senna maintains this open and honest mood when he attends a massive media day uh, in Portugal in January where Williams reveals its new title sponsor and livery for 1994. The new car isn't ready, but Senna and Damon Hill are driving the 1993 car without active suspension, so it's now known as the FW15D. Senna admits he was struggling to maintain his excitement for F1 during 93, and he hopes that changing teams will give him a boost. He also says that earlier in his career, he would have attended a media day like this and been trying too hard when he was driving the car and pushing himself too much. But he says now he's more experienced, he's learned a lot, and he now has the self-control not to take the car to the limit in a January test in Portugal because that's not the purpose of the day. It was also put to him that he wouldn't usually turn up in Europe in January when he was at McLaren, which he counters by saying McLaren's cars were always ready so late that he didn't need to. But I think Alain Prost and various other McLaren test drivers would probably disagree that there was no work to do in January. Lito, if you think back to the start of 94, when you see Ayrton in the blue and white overalls of Williams, did we... Did we see a freshly motivated man and perhaps someone who was more mature than we'd seen in the past? Yes, yes, for sure. But uh, he was, he was really motivated. Uh, and yeah, there was another Senna, no doubt about it. Not anymore the, that, that, you know, that almost wild kid he was when, we, when he came to Formula One. And that's why he was so deceived with the car was driving. I, I have it clear in my mind. Uh, in 94 in Brazil, during the Friday free practice, uh, he met Raul Boisel. Raul was a contemporary of him in their first steps in, in British Formula 4. And they started to talk and uh, Raul asked Senna about the car. And Senna said, well, now I'm not so sure I made the right move. I wish I was like you, doing uh, doing indie cars or a category like the one you're doing, because you can always change the car. You just go and buy another one. Uh, I cannot do it now, but that's the way I feel. It was really, really. He had gone. He had uh, fallen from paradise to hell in in. I don't know, a week, something like that. And it was, it, it showed to me how, how motivated he was before. But he still was uh, so motivated and we could see it during the race. Yeah, and, and we'll get into more detail about what was wrong with that car and why it didn't work. But let's look at the, the pre-season expectations, which as Lito explained there, perhaps it became clear, clear quite quickly weren't met. This is following in the wheel tracks of Mansell and Prost winning championships in dominant fashion with Williams in 92 and 93. So the assumption was that Senna would pick up where they left off and make it a hat-trick. But driver aids were banned for 94, most notably active suspension and traction control. Adrian Newey at Williams had mastered designing his aerodynamics around the consistent ride heights of an active car. And we'll explain that in some more detail in a bit. But the general expectation was that the banning of drive rays would close the field up and peg Williams back. In that December interview, Senna said that Williams's gap from 92 to 93 had got smaller and he expected it to get smaller again in 94, but he said, I hope and pray there will still remain an advantage. In January, he says 1994 will be more competitive than the last two years. He says Benetton was getting stronger through 93, Ferrari was catching up, and it was only a matter of time before McLaren gets on the pace with Peugeot. Frank Williams says there is no question it will be a harder season and he says he's convinced the cars will be much more closely matched and Williams might not even be the quickest. And Frank says we've made life difficult for people in the last two years and that won't carry on. People always catch up. We, we are the target and it's easy to focus on the target and strive to get there. Before Senna had driven the car, Lito, do you think the expectations in Brazil were that he would just carry on what Mansell and Prost had done the two years before? Or was there an awareness, even in Brazil, that 
getting rid of the driver aids would reduce the Williams advantage? No. Everybody was uh, completely sure that he would blow the, the, the opponents. It was really uh, the best driver driving the best car and with the best designer that was in those days, A.J. Newey. Uh, there was a, a feeling that he would go back to, to get, get back to the winning ways he had at McLaren before. Um, no, no doubt, no doubt at all. That's, that's uh, one of the things that made him feel, uh, he feel obliged uh, to give all he had to in the races. You know, it was, he was really being pushed by the people, and so he was pushing himself much beyond uh, his usual limits. So that he spun in that race, it was not usual. No, very uncharacteristic. And I think I had that expectation as well. It just felt like we've had two great drivers in the Williams already. Now we put the other great driver who's still active and he'll win a championship as well. But Prost was still in the news around this time, despite his somewhat forced retirement, because Ron Dennis was trying to get him to come back to McLaren. Ron was very honest about this through the early weeks of 94, uh, saying he was trying to get Prost to, to drive the car. And eventually Prost agrees to test the new McLaren Peugeot. But there are added complications because as part of Prost's deal with Williams to be paid to sit at home, he can't race against the team in 94. Senna joked that while this was going on, he didn't mind if Prost came back and he said it would do a lot of good to my bank account, referencing the fact that Prost's payout would have to be given back to Williams and some of it would probably end up in Senna's pocket. But on the eve of the season, having tested the car, Prost appears on French TV to announce that he will stay retired he says, I did that test for myself. Now I'm certain retirement is right. I'm 100% at peace with myself and a page is turned without regret. Ed, Prost said before that test, he knew that if he came back for 94, he wouldn't be challenging for the championship. But do you think the performance of the McLaren Peugeot was the thing that put him off? And was he right to say no to a comeback? I'm sure had he jumped in the car and found it to his liking, I've got no doubt he'd have tried to take the seat if he could do. If those contractual problems could have been got round, McLaren would have been motivated to do anything it takes to get around those problems. And, you know, anything contractual is solvable if you throw enough dollars at the, at the problem. But what Prost wouldn't have wanted to do is jump into a McLaren Peugeot package that wasn't capable of, of winning and have to wring the car's neck to pick up a handful of podium places. We know it wouldn't have worked for him, so he was absolutely right. I think the only circumstance in which he might have done it, and perhaps the only thing in the back of his mind was, well, if I jump in this car and it's absolutely brilliant and the engine's really good and I can cruise to another world championship, maybe he'll he'll try and do it. But I doubt he ever thought it was that serious. But it's really easy to forget how big a story this actually was through the first few months of, of, of that year. So we've got to consider it was a realistic possibility. And uh, it would have been interesting had, it, had he tried, because what did Frank Williams say? I think he said it would be very embarrassing for all concerned if Prost were to race. <laughs> and he said, especially, especially for Alain. So yeah, that, that would have been a, a fun one to untangle. But look, the, the Prost we saw in 93, a very calculating, only really push when he needed to. He did cruise to the championship. That wasn't the driver who'd be able to jump into a, a McLaren like, say, Hakkinen did during this season and uh, and really fight tooth and nail for the podium finishes he got. So I think it was good for both sides that this Prost-McLaren reunion didn't happen. And Lito, it's, it's well known that Senna's relationship with Prost changed when Prost retired and he was no longer a threat to Senna. But we also heard that Senna missed the competition with Alain at the start of 1994 so how do you think Senna would have felt if Prost had come back with McLaren that season? Oh, I think he would feel disappointed uh, because it wouldn't be anymore the Prost that he was, was, he was used to battle for the victories, for, for the wins. And it wouldn't be the same Prost, you know. Uh, at the end of the day, he, he enjoyed very much that relationship with, with Prost. That was pure motivation for him. They, they, he had nothing personally against Prost. Yeah, you can see it, uh, well, but by the way, the, the relationship changed when Prost retired. He, he were almost friends, you know? But uh, when the, the only thing he wouldn't stand 
uh, in Prost was uh, to beat him. But to, to see Prost on the track without uh, conditions to fight against him, I think it would, it would not, I don't, wouldn't say that it hurt him, but he would enjoy it anyway. Yeah, that's not what the relationship and the rivalry was about for either party, I think. But let's talk about the Williams FW16 then, the 94 car. Adrian Newey took Senna to see the wind tunnel model of the car. And in his book, Newey recalls Senna immediately getting down onto his hands and knees to inspect the model. Newey wrote, All the time I was impressed by his interest in the detail, his inquisitiveness and his obvious enthusiasm. He was looking under the diffuser, listening closely as I pointed out key features. He wasn't an engineer, but he wanted to absorb as much as he could about the design and philosophy of the car. He had a boyish enthusiasm, a desire to learn. It was one of those qualities that made him so great. Alito, do you think maybe this is a side of Senna that gets forgotten over time? You know, we look back at the legend now and it's all about the things he did on track. But do you think his his dedication and his attention to detail off track was also a really key part of what made him so special? Oh, yes. I, I think it's completely forgotten. But who remembers him from uh, his his days in Brazil in going caught race? We'll always have in, in mind a kid with dirty hands, very, very fast on the track and very, very busy on his car, changing spark plugs, adjusting the transmission chain, always taking care of his cars himself. He was kind of a... Uh, almost a, a mechanic in his own car, uh, in his own car. He's always been like that. Always a hardworking driver. I think it's it's got it got it's got completely forgot. Yeah, and it's such an important part even today. You know, a driver has to be just as good in the engineering room, perhaps, as they are in the cockpit. Let's talk about the FW16 some more. Newey said. It was a clear evolution of all of his cars that you could trace back to the 1988 March that he designed. And looking back in his book, uh, he says, had we become too complacent or conservative, possibly, with the regulation change from active back to passive suspension, we should probably have made more changes in order to develop a car more aerodynamically suited to a large range of ride heights. You could probably argue that we didn't adapt to what was effectively a major regulation change, as well as we could and should have done, and that I didn't put enough thought and work into this area. Ed, even we can tell now, with hindsight, that this was a huge regulation change and that the switch back from active to passive suspension would completely change F1 aerodynamics. So was it a sign of perhaps how basic even a genius like Adrian Newey's understanding was of aero at the time that even he hadn't quite tuned in to what a big deal this was for 94. Yeah, well, he, he said it, hasn't he, that, that they should have maybe taken a few more steps back. But it, it is difficult because that whole aero philosophy, and the, the aero philosophy goes all the way back to the March 881 of, of 1988 that he followed through. But for the past few years before 94, it was developed around an active ride car, also with traction control as well. And actually, I remember interviewing Damon Hill a few years ago about this car, and he, and he suggested that, there was some kind of instability in the car that perhaps was initially partly exaggerated by the going to the narrower tyres in 93, but that things like traction control also played a part in not, not showing up in the same way because if the car, if you have a little stall and the rear starts to step out, it, it can be controlled a little bit if it's happening on the on the power. So that there's probably that thing of not necessarily knowing where your weaknesses are because you've, you've shrouded them. And I, I get the impression they kind of... They they sort of tried to adapt and carry on with the, with the aero concept they they had and, and and evolve it and that just exposed some of those weaknesses that were that were probably there that you could get round with particularly active ride because obviously when it comes to aero having the, the the platform control is absolutely essential and it's it's vital to this day and we should remember this is a much uh, this is a much younger Adrian Newey obviously aerodynamics were still uh, still much less uh, less well advanced and well understood so it was part of the learning curve for for him I'm sure and he's become very very good over time at working out in rule sets where the performance is to be gained etc where the potential banana skins are but we also see this pattern time and time again maybe the the, the one time we haven't is most most recently with mercedes that when you have big rule changes 
often it's the team that's succeeding that gets tripped up the most because it's gone down the so so far down the line of refining the existing concept the parameters change and suddenly with those dials changing in all sorts of areas weaknesses get thrown up or areas that you take for granted trip you up so yeah uh knew he probably should have been a little bit more wiser to it but i think ultimately it was a question of almost being a victim of their own success yeah and who are we to question Adrian Newey, in fact, probably the only thing I, the only things I know about aerodynamics have probably come from reading his book and studying people cleverer than me, analysing his cars. Testing gets underway in 94 and it becomes very uh, quickly on Williams's radar that Benetton are fast. Newey recalls Senna not being happy with the seating position in the Williams or the small diameter steering wheel, which I suspect was a legacy of Nigel Mansell's preferences in 92. Mansell loved a tiny steering wheel. Damon Hill remembers it being an uncomfortable fit, as many of Newey's cars were in this time. And he said the drivers were scrunched up in the cockpit and you'd have scabs on your knuckles from driving it. But the drivers were also finding the car unpredictable to drive. Newey says it was useful that Hill stuck around from 93 because he'd driven the good active car and then he could make it clear to Williams just how much performance they'd lost going back to passive. Newey said it wasn't that we'd produced a bad car as such, it was that we hadn't produced a car that was well suited to passive suspension. So a bad passive car, I would say. We were casting anxious glances at Benetton, their car seemed to be very competitive. Uh, Senna said to Hill around this time, does it always feel like this? And Hill says his response was that he was hoping Senna could tell him. And uh, the big final pre-season test is at Imola, and Schumacher's fastest, a tenth of head of Senna, there's a flurry of times at the end of the final day, and it's almost like a mini qualifying session before everyone packs off to Brazil. Senna said, these are not the real times. We can go faster, but this is our strategy not to show all of our cards. This isn't the game. That begins in Brazil. And while Schumacher was happy, he said, we know this is not reality. The Williams hasn't shown its true potential, and we were at 100%. Ed, we talked about this a little bit already, but... Williams knows it's got a difficult car by this point, but do you think from the outside, the expectation was still, we'll get to Brazil and Senna will be at the front? Yeah, very, very much so. I think there was a feeling that Williams were maybe playing their cards, keeping them close to their chests, and just the feeling that it'll be all right on the night, really. There was a lot of excitement around how strong Benetton and Schumacher were, and it was known that there were Williams problems, but... I think the feeling was the Senna-Williams combination would, when it came down to it, be unbeatable. And it was more a question of whether Benetton and Schumacher could could challenge rather than whether Williams would be behind. It's very easy with hindsight to misremember what the prevailing narrative was. But it really was a question of whether Benetton could really make good on this testing form and really challenge rather than whether Williams was in, in serious trouble. So, yeah, I, I think people still, even after testing, and testing wasn't quite the uh, media extravaganza with all the kind of analysis that, that people like ourselves do nowadays, back in those days, either we have to remember. So yeah, I think as we're going towards Brazil, everything was packed up, people really still did feel the Williams would, would be sorted and be absolutely setting the pace by the time they got to Interlagos. Yeah, and talking of Interlagos, uh, back at the January media event, Senna was asked about starting the season with his home race. And he said... I wish Brazil wasn't the first race. I'd have preferred more time to get the new car and myself further forward. When it's totally new, you can be caught out by some small thing. I'd rather not be exposed to a surprise and be able to go through slowly and methodically. And Hill noted that from the moment Senna arrived at Williams, he seemed, and this is Hill's words, these are Hill's words, perpetually pensive. He gave the impression of someone carrying the mantle of being the best of all time while embodying the hopes and dreams of the entire Brazilian nation. Lito, do you think there was this huge pressure on Senna by this point with the status he had in Brazil? Did he feel obliged to win the Brazilian Grand Prix? Yes, yes. He had always felt like this. Uh, you know, he he had such a nationalist part in in his heart, he was always uh, waving the Brazilian flag. And when it came down to, to Interlagos, the track, he was uh, the, the mind uh, behind the, the, the reconstruction of the track. It was his track, it was his home, it was his public there in the stands. 
you know. And from the public, it was not the pressure from the public. It was the pressure from himself. Uh, and the public was not uh, feeling that he had to win. The public was feeling that they knew he would win because he was God. <laughs> you know? And so that's, the, the, the pressure was really, really tough on him in those days. The car was not good at all, uh, but he would do everything he could to win. And yes, he felt like that. He was a little, uh, I don't, I wouldn't say smash it, but he was bending under that, that pressure. Yeah, and when we get to the race weekend, he, he's still getting the job done as we go through the sessions. He's fastest in every session leading up to the race, including the Sunday morning warm-up. And he's on pole position by three temps ahead of Schumacher after rain hits the final part of qualifying and interrupts a little back-and-forth battle they were having. Jean Lacey and Hill are on the second row, and they're both more than a second back. And Hill says it was a measure of Senna's brilliance that he put that car on pole, and Hill calls the 1.5 second gap between them shocking. Newey says Williams was still having problems with the car, but Senna hung on thanks to his phenomenal control, and even Newey agrees that the pole position was a measure of Senna's ability rather than Williams's superiority. Ed, do you think that was appreciated at the time, or did Senna's 63rd pole in F1 just feel like business as usual? I don't think anybody outside of the team really appreciated how mighty that performance was. I think everyone just looked at that equation, Senna plus Williams equals pole position. So, of course, he was going to be on pole. And actually, it did equal pole position 100% of the time in Formula 1, albeit it was tragically only a sample set of three. But doing it at Interlagos was particularly impressive because this was a car with a tendency to have aero stalls. It was exacerbated by the bumps. Interlagos has never been a particularly smooth circuit, it's safe to say. So this was a really, really hard place to do that. So, yeah, this, I think this was a supreme effort by, by Senna to put it on pole. And in the race, Senna makes a good start. Alacy makes a great start and jumps Schumacher for second. Schumacher makes a failed attempt to get past the Ferrari at the end of the first lap, repeats the move a lap later and pulls it off. So after two laps, though, Senna is already four seconds clear. And Schumacher said he panicked during that short time spent behind Alacy because he thought Senna might get out of range and he'd not be able to get within striking distance around the pit stops. 1994 marks the return of refuelling to F1 and Benetton was definitely the first team to cotton on to the importance of strategy for overtaking and for winning races. Pre-season, Frank Williams had said that teams would just fuel up for as long as they felt the tyres would last because that would still be the determining factor in when pit stops took place. Ed, is that a sign of how primitive F1's understanding of the strategy of refuelling was when this came back in, in 94. We touched on it in our Hill versus Schumacher episode in the last series that Williams would spend a lot of 94 getting outfoxed strategically by Benetton. Yes, I think that mindset of it being tyre life and tyre performance defined with the refuelling level being secondary very much was uh, under underestimated by Williams. It took them far too long to get on top of that. Actually, that side of it, the, the actual strategy in terms of number of stops, fuel loads, etc., wasn't really relevant at, at Interlagos. It was more the that the speed of the refueling stop was was the key there in terms of the, the the change of lead. But yeah, Benetton were just far ahead in 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 these terms. And of course, it was Ross Braun who was there, who was playing a part in in doing that. And we saw him doing all these uh, advanced strategies in later years, famously with Ferrari. But he started doing them with Benetton because it was all about calculating your your trade-off of when you could attack, how you could gain track position without actually overtaking on the track. And Williams were were really slow on this. You could excuse them for the first few races of 94, not quite getting it, but they were very flat-footed and adapting, unfortunately, because they remained so focused on this uh, this tyre uh, tire life defined strategic approach. So, yeah, everything... Benetton was just the sharper team in that regard. And that's how it proved here, because although the strategies were quite similar, in fact, the first stops for Senna and Schumacher, they come in on the same lap, but Williams do get outfoxed. I'm not quite sure how they managed to be so much slower than Benetton in the stops because Schumacher put an extra lap of fuel in but comes out ahead. So he takes the lead during the pit stops, pulls away 
a slight gap during the second stint and he ends up managing that gap at around five or six seconds. Senna pits first, second time around. And again, Benetton are much faster when Schumacher's in a lap later and the gap's up to over seven seconds. And Schumacher said he never really felt under pressure and he could increase the gap whenever he needed to. And, you know, that he was getting held up in traffic but could always pull away. Lito, once we had the second pit stops and Schumacher's lead was even bigger, did you think that the race was over then in terms of the battle for the win? You know, was Ayrton going to finish second at that point? Well, thoughts are coming, were coming and going by the time because uh, when we saw the gap, everybody said, well, now it's gone. There's no way he can fight back. But suddenly Senna gets back to the track and starts to fly and say, hey, there's still life there. Let's see what can happen. And he was really getting close, closer to, to Schumacher. But until that moment that where well, he lost control in Junção. But uh, still, still, we were believing or hoping that Senna would, uh, would make a miracle and would win that race because it was Senna, because it was at Interlagos. And at Interlagos, there's only one winner. It was Senna. It was not that day. Yeah, I mean, he certainly tries and he does get the gap back down to just under five seconds before he has his fateful spin on lap 56. And as if the footage that Ed mentioned at the top of the show sent a broadside across the circuit, you know, if that wasn't shocking enough, obviously he stalled the car as well and ends up having to roll it back down the hill off the circuit into the grass and he's out of the race. Senna took full responsibility for the spin, publicly saying he made a mistake and holding his hands up to the team in a debrief afterwards. And Newey recalls, none of us had it in our hearts to pass judgment. He was driving a difficult car on the limit, and he had done things with it no other driver could. Damon Hill recalls a similar theme in his book, saying, Senna spinning on his home track said everything about how hard that car was to drive. I finished second one lap down. I was physically destroyed after 70 laps, and I could not imagine how Ayrton had managed to get as far as he did. It was probably also dawning on him that this season was going to be tougher than he bargained for. Ed, do you think at the point of the spin, was that when it started to dawn on the rest of us that this wasn't going to be another Williams walkover? Or was there still that perception, like you mentioned, that Interlagos can be a funny track and maybe Williams just had a, a tough first race? I think it certainly started people taking the problems more seriously. Although, if memory serves, the questioning was more of Senna himself and whether he was uh, struggling a bit under the pressure of expectation and the home crowd, uh, etc. And all the signs were there. And probably even then, we were still expecting Williams to sort it out. But what we saw there was, was Senna just pushing so hard, hoping against hope that he could do something against a, a superior car ultimately in the, in the Benetton so yeah I, I think probably it, we knew it at that point it wasn't going to be as easy a season and a, and a kind of 14 win season or, or, or something but I think still even then there was a, a suspicion it might just have been the pressure of the home race the expectation everything getting a little bit overwrought and then you know a little mistake is made and actually if you if you watch it that there's the, the camera angle um Fujian Sao you can see the the, the rear end on, on the power stepping out quite regularly there on Senna so he was leaning on it there and and obviously backing himself to to deal with any problem he, he had in that corner but it just caught him out in the uh, in the end so yeah I think this this is where the, the suspicions that it might not be that straightforward start to come although I don't think still people realized how big a problem the Williams really did have yeah and Hill being a lap down was perhaps the the true measure of where that car was uh, for a driver who was perhaps not as superhuman as Senna, and I hope Damon wouldn't take offence at that claim. So Schumacher wins the race, and afterwards there's news that Benetton have been protested by our very own Gary Anderson, no less. It was to do with Benetton's barge boards, and let's hear a quick clip from Gary on why he did it. Brazil 94, we finished fourth, and you know, as a small team, a third-place podium position as such would have been a massive reward for our efforts and we had a good little car so we just decided to protest or I decided to protest the Benetton because of the um, barge board arrangement in the regulations it said that the the uh, the underfloor and the barge board and its brackets basically are part of that had to be an impervious surface in other words 
If you look at the dictionary, impervious means you can't pour water through it. So, otherwise you couldn't have any holes in that floor. On our car, we had the barge board. It was held on by one, there was one stay at the bottom. So basically you could come along the underfloor, you know, outside of the underfloor, along the leading edge of that stay, around the profile of the bottom of the barge board, back around again, along the back of that stay, and back onto the floor. So it had a continuous perimeter, external perimeter as such. So there's no holes in it. On the, the Benetton, they had two stays, one at the front, one at the back of the barge board, which is much easier and lighter to do. Uh, it kept the barge board stiffer. Um, but I felt that was illegal because you had, basically you had the same as us. You had a leading edge on the front stay, around the outside of the barge board, along the back of the barge board, along the back of the back stay, and across the floor again. But you had that hole in the middle. So if you poured water in, around, in between the barge board and the underfloor and the front stay and the rear stay, there was a big hole there and it would go through. So we protested on the fact that that hole um, was part of an impervious surface. Um, unfortunately, uh, we didn't win. Um, to this day, I still say we were right. Um, I think if Charlie Whiten was here with us now, he would say the same thing. I've talked to him about it many times. But between them and the way the situation was, they came up with the fact that the surface that was there was impervious. So, you know, that means like a sieve is impervious, is solid, and the holes don't count. Well, I don't understand that philosophy. So there's Gary's view, and at Williams, Newey agreed. Uh, he wrote in his book that Benetton said, it's not a hole, it's a series of stays and a barge board, which is a bit like saying the middle of a polo mint isn't a hole, it's just a place where there happens to be no mint. I do love the way Newey tries to simplify aerodynamics. It's brilliant. But uh, he said it seemed like a weak argument and he was stunned when the FIA not only allowed the Benetton interpretation, but then changed the rules for 1995 to make it clearer that this type of design was allowed. So, Ed, whose side are you on here? Benetton's or Gary Anderson and Adrian Newey? Yeah, well, I'm obliged to side with uh, Gary Anderson and Adrian Newey through, obviously, the race's own Gary Anderson and also Adrian Newey. You know, he knows what he's talking about. But the <laughs> argument they make is is impossible to, to counter convincingly. And the very fact that the rules then had to be tweaked to actually say what the interpretation claim they said, I think, says uh, says a lot. But, you know, Ross Braun was always very, very good in the way he he dealt with uh, the powers that be in, in, in Formula One, shall we say. So I'm sure he'd have run that past Charlie Whiting at some stage previously and they'd, they'd accepted the interpretation uh, of that. So I think that probably played a part in it. It was almost sort of preordained that that interpretation was was accepted. So yeah, just, that just becomes a bit of a footnote uh, to that race. Uh, but you know, there, there was grounds to, to question the Benetton. I, th I think Gary was probably quite right to, pr to protest it. I was slightly surprised Williams didn't consider doing the same actually. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I think not, uh, not Benetton's only brush with the authorities in 1994, of course, and they wouldn't always come out quite so clean in the future. But we'll spend the last part of this episode trying to explain a bit more about what was wrong with the Williams at this time. We're not going to go into Senna's other two appearances in 1994, because that's not what this is about. We want to use some of that time with what was going on behind the scenes at Williams to get a better explanation of why the FW16 was uh, a flawed car at the start of the year. Uh, Newey writes in his book, Ayrton must have been cursing his flawed timing. He joined a hugely successful team only to see them lose their competitive edge. Still, I struggled to understand what was wrong with our car. Something was unstable in the aerodynamics, which meant it had to be related to the ground effect. The two things closest to the ground are the front wing and the floor, so it could be that the diffuser or the front wing was stalling. Newey skips the Pacific Grand Prix to work on the problem and he joins a small test crew that go to Nagaro in France with Hill to conduct some tests. Hill complained that the car was porpoising, which is bouncing up and down effectively on the straights, so Newey went to watch from trackside so he could see it as well. He goes back to the wind tunnel running tests with Flovis paint to look at the airflow separation or to look for airflow separation I should say. There's no indication of a problem with the front wing, so he moves to the front of the side pods because that's where the floor begins and that's where you're carrying the airflow to the diffuser. Here, Newey spots a clear airflow separation at the front of the side pod, which was causing the diffuser to stall in a way Newey describes as violent and catastrophic. 
So no wonder Senna spun it at Interlagos. He describes it as a simple geometrical problem with a simple solution, which was to shorten the side pods. He'd gone for long side pods because the longer the side pod, the more suction you can generate from the floor and feed into the diffuser, which means more downforce if you can prevent the airflow separation. But the further forward the front of the side pod is, the lower it is to the ground, which makes it more likely to suffer this separation. Newey described it as a eureka moment. He needed to get the front of the side pod further away from the front wheels, which would mean less peak downforce, but more consistent performance. And that's something we hear a lot about today. It's not always about the, the highest downforce number you can generate. It's got to be usable downforce. Newey said that until he could redesign the side pod, and that redesign uh, didn't appear until the French Grand Prix in July, Williams would be trapped with a bad car. He explained the situation to Senna, and they worked on setup tweaks to get around it, but Newey says no amount of setup tuning was going to overcome the car's aerodynamic instability. Lito, if we look beyond Imola, if Senna had, had survived and had still been in the car, do you think his job in the races up until the upgrade arrived in France would have been just to get the maximum out of the car and maybe have to settle for some second places? Do you think Ayrton could have been the guy to, to say, right, I just have to start finishing second to Schumacher until I have a car to really fight him. Could he have done that in his in his mind? Yes, I think he would. As he had done the season before, 93, he would uh, wait for, the, for a track where he could um, beat everybody or he could fight for victories, like he had done in Monaco the, the, in 93. Uh, but he would, I think he would, he would uh, get some points, be second, be third, and then uh, wait for the right moment to fight for the title. I think he would. What do you think, Ed? Do you think, would that have been the way Senna and Williams had to play it? Would they have had no choice but to accept the role of second fiddle to Schumacher over those next few races? I think that would have been the plan, yes. I mean, you could say that the fact that Senna didn't settle for second at Interlagos suggests he wouldn't have been willing to, but that, that was the home race and he, he felt an obligation to the home fans of course and they all... didn't know as much about the car at that point as well exactly exactly and you know he he was he was the man for brazil and you know there's a the footage of them all leaving the circuit once he's uh, spun out so i think we can we can consider interlagos his own thing it would have been interesting though because obviously he didn't get any points in the pacific grand prix obviously imola went as imola went so had he still still been going, they'd have lost a lot of points. So that wouldn't necessarily even have been compatible with that that being patient. So it would have been really, really tricky. And I think it would have been fascinating to see how the team, how Senna and, and Williams would have would have gone. Would they have kind of coalesced around this joint objective and then come through to to take the title? Or would it have become fractious? Would Senna have thought this wasn't the team that I thought I was getting? Williams have thought, oh, this isn't, wasn't the driver we thought we were going to get. And then it sort of all goes a little bit prost at Ferrari. I suspect it would have worked, but you, you don't know. That's the fascinating thing. And it's it's a real shame we did never get to see that play out and we don't get to see Senna and Schumacher as title rivals. That's why it's great we've talked about this race because this actually is the only race where for any substantial period of time we see Senna and Schumacher racing each other as title rivals so it's a very special kind of time capsule of what if because of that yeah and it's not something yeah it's not something that really gets remembered i feel like the moments that are encapsulated from 94 of course there's imola but other than the spin into lagos it, it's being in the gravel in aida and listening to the track what he thought was the traction control on the benetton from trackside those are all the moments it's been boiled down to so yeah it's, it's almost a novelty to go back and look at Senna completing 50-odd laps of a Grand Prix in a Williams. And Lito, do you still think, we'll give the last word to you here, is, is, it, is it strange to think back of the, you know, the one race where Ayrton did actually have a battle with Schumacher? And, and do you think that, would, would they have defined the next few years of F1? And do you think that Senna could have fended off Schumacher? Because, you know, Schumacher was a phenomenon in F1 over the years that followed, was Senna perhaps the only person that, that could have stopped that happening? Yes, I, th I think it would be memorable. I think we'd have, a, <laughs> you know, a titans battle, you know, two, two drivers, the, the best of each generation. Uh, a season 
experienced and more mature Senna, but still that uh, driver uh, on fire that he's always been. And Schumacher, Schumacher growing up, Schumacher becoming uh, the guy who would uh, who would win seven world titles. I think it was really, really a shame because it would be, I think, uh, the best moments ever in Formula One. Yeah, such a such a missed rivalry, and uh, poss- Yeah, I think the greatest rivalry that that we didn't get. Now we we did say at the start of the show we wouldn't venture past the Brazilian Grand Prix. We did a little bit in the end, but hopefully that helped explain what was wrong with the Williams at the time Senna was driving it and why his efforts at Interlagos were in fact pretty heroic, even if he came away from his home race with nothing to show for it. So that's it for this episode of Bring Back V10s. It feels very good to have Series 2 up and running. And if this is your first time listening, go back and check out our entire first series, which you can find in this podcast feed. That should keep you going for the next few days before episode two is released. Keep your questions coming in for our season finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on social media. I get a notification every time someone on Twitter uses that hashtag, even if it's not a question about our podcast, so I promise you it will get seen. Next week, we're moving to the end of the 1990s and revisiting Honda's plans to enter its own team in F1. They got as far as running a test car in early 1999 with Jos Verstappen, but then decided against continuing with the project. We'll look in depth into why Honda pulled the plug and how BAR picked up the pieces.